0: and various studies throughout the week. Please come and join us next time you are in Oklahoma City. We would love to have you. And now, we hope you enjoy today's message.
1: What I'd like to share with you today is going to start out with just one passage of Scripture. And in fact, we'll whittle that down to just one phrase in the Scripture, but they w- we will use that passage of Scripture and that phrase in Scripture as a springboard to a much grander or greater category of Scriptures, or really, we could say, biblical topic that I would suggest is very critical to us. And I would also suggest that this particular topic is not new to our generation It is an issue, as we'll see as we look at various uh, passages of Scripture. It's an issue, a situation, uh, uh, an approach to life that has been uh, spoken of by the Lord for generation after generation after generation. Let's start with the first Scripture, which is Exodus chapter 24, verse 12. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain, be there, and I will give you luchota Evan, I will give you tablets of stone, and the law and commandments which I have written, that you may teach them. This simply worded verse, do you realize there's no big theological words in this verse? they just aren't, they're not there. This simple verse, simply worded verse, taken really from this week's Torah portion, from Sefer Shabbat, the book of Exodus, chapter 24, I would suggest to you that this verse, like many verses in Scripture, is jam-packed, it's jam-packed with spiritual principles that are pertinent to us, they're valuable to us, and they're spiritual principles that persist all the way through Scripture. Scripture. Again, let me read this to you, Exodus chapter 24, verse 12. Then the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and be there. And I will give you tablets of stone and the law and commandments which I have written that you may teach them. As I just mentioned, there are many spiritual principles that are linked to this verse. And I want to emphasize just one of them. Just one. Did you notice the first phrase in this verse? I read it twice already. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses. Now, most readers of Scripture, and I I believe that's probably most of us here, if not all of us, recognize that this particular statement, then the Lord said to Moses, this particular statement, we can call it a formula if you would, Where God speaks, his servant listens, and then his servant seeks to do what God says to do. That formula, if you would, is repeated often in Scripture. In this case, it's Moses. Moses is the one being spoken to. By Yomer Adonai Moshe, then the Lord said to Moses. In other cases, it's the Lord said to Noah. In other cases, the Lord said to Joseph. In other cases, the Lord said to Aaron. And you can follow that all the way through through the prophets and forward into the Brit and the New Covenant. And if we were to characterize, I think, Moses' walk with God, we might say that Moses whom we call Moshe in Hebrew, that Moses tried to conform his life, his life, to the word of God as best he could. Now, was he always like that in his life? No, he was not. (laughs) But he came to this point of connection with the Lord, and we would use the term relationship with the Lord, where Moshe became very committed to doing what God wanted him to do. We call that doing the will of God. And I pray today that that's basically our interconnection, that we want to do what's right in the sight of God, what pleases the Lord, to do his will. Now, later in Israel's history, and in fact in the New Covenant writings of the first century, those writings we see in the New Testament, the the Brit Hadashah, we learn that the living out of life in tandem with God's word And his will, there's one way to call that. We we can call that walking in the spirit where we try to live our lives according to his word, according to his will, according to what God desires. That's called walking in the Spirit. That's one way to, to, to describe that. Of course, we need the empowerment of the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, to do that. And that's considered the spiritual norm for New Covenant believers, for Messianic believers, believer in, believers in the Messiah. The spiritual norm is to walk in the Spirit. Now, think about it. There's a big difference between walking in the Spirit and walking in the flesh. Big difference. The end result of walking in the spirit is different than the end result of walking in the flesh and living according to fleshly, carnal ways. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, it states this. I say then, walk in the spirit. This is one of the over 1,000 commandments in the New Covenant. I say then, walk in the spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And then just in the same chapter, a little bit later in Galatians chapter 5, verse 25, we read this statement. It says this, if we live in the Spirit. So it talks about walking in the Spirit and living in the Spirit. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. You see how it's all connected there. And I think you would agree, if you carefully study Scripture, the Lord wants us to live according to His Spirit to do what's right in his sight, to be in connection with his word and try to do his will. But here's the point. Here's the point I want to develop today. The God of Israel, the creator of the universe, El-Chai, the living God, however you want to call him, our Savior, he is able to speak, to communicate with to interact with, to lead, can I say the next one? To discipline, train us, and teach us. He's able to do all those things for his people. Again, to speak to us. And if I ask you, as a God, has the Lord ever showed you something, spoke to you? I'm not talking about anything weird here. Please understand me. But has he ever gotten your attention and kind of point across to you and made sure that you understood what he really desired of you? I hope so, because that's a, a normative thing. Has he communicated with you? Has he interacted with you? Has he intervened in your life? Has he, has he, has he led you in, in a wonderful way, even in a way that you didn't even anticipate? Many believers can say, yes, the Lord has led me. He led me in, in ways I did not anticipate. I didn't realize that. He was there guiding me. And some of the things that turned up in my life, and it seemed like they were, they were dead-end streets or curveballs or however one wants to say it, actually the Lord was involved in these things. Has he ever disciplined you? <laughs> it's a way of life for a believer to be Disciplined. I mean, for using the Greek language here, the discipline and disciple go together. You can even hear it, see it in the word, discipline, disciple. Has he ever taught you, trained you? Of course he has. And he's able to do that with his people who will willingly yield to him. And we see that exhibited somewhat in Moses, in fact, in a great way in Moses' life. It's amazing by age 80 as, yeah, hear that, age 80, as Moses is leading the children of Israel in the vast numbers that they were, hundreds of thousands, some estimate over 2 million, As he leads the children of Israel, Moshe had come to a point in his life after going through the dealings of God and going through the ways of the world that he had encountered and growing up in the courts of Pharaoh and and all that went into his life that we read about in Sefer Shemot, the book of Exodus, and forward. Moshe had come to a place where he desired to yield to the Lord. And when he comes to that place, God is able to use him mightily he desired, Moses desired to yield to the Lord, to follow the Lord, and in a sense to, to uh, submit to the word of the Lord in his life. Now, Yeshua profoundly stated, and I love this passage, I think you do too, John chapter 10, Yochanan 10 verse 27, and this beautiful section about the Roeh Hatov, the good shepherd, it says, my sheep hear my voice. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. How many of you like that verse? I like that one. <laughs> Well, Moses had to learn. He had to learn to hear what the Lord was saying to him. Listen, please, personally. And Moses, as the representative leader within the community, had to hear what God desired to say to the whole community. So you find two levels, at least, and there's actually more, but two basic levels of God's interaction with Moses. One was to him personally. For example, Take your sandals off. This is holy ground. There wasn't hundreds of thousands of Israelites around Moses at that time. It was a very distinct word to him personally. But later on, when the children of Israel faced with Pharaoh's army, trying to swallow them up again, bring them back under subjection, God says to Moses in front of all the people, Stand and see Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And we know, as the, the uh, Torah points out, we know that the children of Israel walk through Yam Suf, the sea of reeds, on dry ground. Now, this is a far cry, a far cry, being able to have a walk with the Lord where we want to follow his word and do his will and follow after him. This is a far cry, from the non-abilities, the non-abilities of the stone and wooden idols the nations surrounding Israel had on display. These stone and wood idols made of silver and gold, sometimes overlaid with silver and gold that the nations all around Israel at the time of Moses and beyond, these idols were worshiped They were even thought to speak to the people, but they really couldn't. The psalmist, in several psalms, he spoke on behalf of God and against the idols of humanity. For example, in Psalm 135, beginning with verse 13, "'Your name, O Lord, endures forever.' Your fame, O Lord, throughout all generations. Verse 14 of Psalm 135 continues, For the Lord will judge his people, and he will have compassion on his servants. Then the psalmist segues to the next statement. Verse 15, The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, they have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear, nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them, who make those idols, those who make those idols are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them, the psalmist said. And the prophets of Israel, and there are some really, when you look at them and you really dig deeply into There's a little bit of humor involved in some of the statements that the prophets make, not only concerning the idols, but the idolaters. For example, Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 5. Here, Jeremiah chides, he chides the idols and the idolaters. In chapter 10, verse 5 of Jeremiah, Jeremiah says, they are upright like a palm tree. Upright like a palm tree, and they cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot go by themselves. I don't know if you catch the humor, but this is somewhat humorous. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, nor can they do any good. They can't do anything. He continues in verse 8 of Jeremiah chapter 10 and says that they are altogether dull-hearted and foolish. A wooden idol is a worthless doctrine. The Aramaic Bible describes it, that translates that is worthless teachings of worship, things of good wood shall cease. Worthless. Whatever somebody might learn from an idol, whatever that person might learn is worthless continues in Jeremiah chapter 10 verse 10 it says Elohim it says but the Lord is the true God you see the contrast between the idols and the Lord the idols can't speak they can't hear they can't do anything they have to be carried they have to be placed but it says the Lord is the true God he is the living God the idols are dead he is the living God and he's the everlasting king the idols can perish but he's the everlasting king and then it goes on Jeremiah continues in verse 10 continues on he says at his wrath the wrath of the Lord the earth will tremble and the nations will not be able to endure his indignation Isaiah also chides the idols and the idolaters. In Isaiah chapter 46, beginning with verse 5, the Lord speaking through Isaiah says, To whom will you liken me? To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we should be alike? Isaiah is full of many questions, the book of Isaiah. Question after question after question. Perhaps the most famous is Isaiah 53. Who has believed our report and unto whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Isaiah 53 verse 1. Question after question again. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we should be alike? And then he says this in verse 6. They lavish gold out of the bag and weigh silver on the scales. They hire a goldsmith, and he makes it a god. They prostrate themselves. Yes, they worship. They bear it on the shoulder. They carry it and set it in its place, and it stands from its place. It shall not move. The one cries out to it, yet it cannot answer, nor save him out of his trouble. Remember this and show yourselves, men. Recall to mind, O you transgressors, remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done saying my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure and not to be outdone Habakkuk Habakkuk chapter 2 listen to what he says about idols and idolaters beginning with verse 18 what prophet is the image that its maker should carve it The molded image a teacher of lies that the maker of its mold should trust in it to make mute idols mute idols verse 19 Habakkuk chapter 2 woe to him who says to wood (laughs) awake to silent stone arise it shall teach behold it is overlaid with gold and silver yet In it, there is no breath at all. And then this beautiful contrast that that Habakkuk brings. After saying all that about idols in his time, he says this important passage, verse 20 of Habakkuk chapter 2. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let the earth keep silence before him. The Lord is in his holy temple let the earth keep silence before him. In the first century, the time of Yeshua and the apostles, as the nations all around Israel were receiving the bessorah the gospel, the good news, they began distancing themselves, and it's quite a move of the Holy Spirit. They began distancing themselves from the very idols that were around them. This process was noticeable to the apostles. In fact, it may surprise you how often the apostles, in the, in the, in the writings of the apostles, the epistles, etc., how often they mention this type of a thing. As we receive the good news, let me say this, in the 21st century, as we receive the gospels, we receive the good news, as it finds good root, good soil in our, in our hearts, we should be less and less bound by those things which would try to lord it over our lives. Those things that would try to take dominion over us, whether they be fleshly habits or things that we place on such a pedestal. Do we have that in our society? Oh, do we have that in our society? From sports figures to politics, I mean, you just you just go down uh, movie stars, thing after thing, and when it comes to things, it could be cars, homes, anything that we place above the Lord. But as we receive the good news, just like what happened in the first century to the nations around Israel, as the Bessera went out first from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, then could say Hallelujah to the uttermost parts of the earth. And as the good news interacted with those cultures and societies, as people began to trust and believe in the Lord Yeshua, as their personal Lord and Savior, some of the idolatry stuff began to fall away from them. They began to step away from it. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Again, I'll suggest to you that there's more about this in the new covenant than we would imagine. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, Corinth was a place of idolatry. In fact, it was a place of haven for idolaters. It was a place of pilgrimage for idolaters. He writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. For pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments. And notice this next phrase, please. Casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Pulling it all down. And bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Messiah. Every thought. For many years, I've appreciated a particular passage of Scripture. Now, I know you probably have some of your favorite ones. If I asked you what's your, what what passage of Scripture, do you really look at it, it just stands out to you? Well, I've had one that's an unusual one. Several times I've said it here. But it's also from the apostolic writings. It's from Robschel, Paul the Apostle. And again, a similar situation of what had happened in Corinth. They came to know the Lord, and they were putting aside their idols. The same thing happened in Thessaloniki, as it's called today. And we read in 1 Thessalonians, this passage that's always thrilled me, really. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you. And then there's this phrase which has captivated me for decades. The process involved behind this next phrase. The good news comes into Thessaloniki, as it's called today. It comes into that area. People began to believe the idolaters and those who are involved in idolatry. They began to believe the good news and then the idols begin to fall down. They began to find distance between themselves and those things that they had idolized. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of venture we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve, to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead Even Yeshua who delivers us from the wrath to come. What a process was taking place in Thessaloniki. What a process was taking place. They began to receive the gospel. We know a lot about this particular community as we do Corinth because the whole arrival of the Besorah, the good news to these cities is expressed in the book of Acts, the history of it. So you can unite some of the passages written to them with some of the history that's in the book of Acts. And I don't know what happens with you if you did that, but what happens to me is I go, whoa, there's a move of the Holy Spirit there. And where there's a move of the Holy Spirit, everything that casts itself above God falls, must fall. Idolatry must go. Everything that exalts itself against the knowledge of the Lord has to fall down. He writes also in Second Corinthians again to the first century former idolaters at Corinth. In Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, he says, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness. In other words, God spoke just as we initially read in Exodus chapter 24. Yomer Adonai Moshe, and the Lord spoke to Moses. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of the darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Messiah Yeshua. Then not just Paul, but Peter. Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here, conduct yourself in fear and reverence. If you're calling upon the Lord, conduct yourself with reverence and fear before him. Verse 18 of 1 Peter chapter 1. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold. Corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. Verse 19 But you were redeemed with the precious blood of Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus. You were redeemed with his precious blood as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And I'll remind you what it says in Exodus chapter 20, which serves as sort of a baseline idea. Exodus 20 verse 2. I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of bondage. And verse 3 then resonates. You shall have no other gods before me. Will you say that verse with me? You shall have no other gods before me. Let's say that one more time. You shall have no other gods before me. How many gods are we allowed to have before the Lord? None. 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 Now, from this passage that we just read from Sefer Shemot, the book of Exodus chapter 20, particularly verse 3, from this passage spliced together with many other passages in the Scripture comes the prevailing Jewish belief concerning idolatry and particularly that idolatry is among the worst of all sins. Modern Jewish theology, let me read what modern Jewish theology says. Quote, in its simplest formulation, idolatry is the worship of gods or natural phenomena in place of the one God who created the world, redeemed the Israelites from Egyptian slavery, and revealed the Torah on Mount Sinai. The prohibition of idolatry includes the worship of celestial bodies, um, even concerned to ask this but i sure hope there's no one here that looks at horoscopes and consults horoscopes for their uh you know their their word for the day i hope not (laughs) the prohibition of idols includes the worship of celestial bodies or other natural phenomena or people inanimate objects or foreign gods, as well as worshiping God in the manner in which idols were worshiped, which, according to some biblical passages, featured child sacrifice and prostitution. It is likewise forbidden to make any object an object of divine worship, even if it's merely for declaration, decoration. end quote. I think you would agree, carefully listening to that uh, modern theology, Jewish theological approach, that it's a very similar to how you or myself might view it. That idolatry is wrong, it's a major sin, and idolatry can have many aspects to it. When we put something ahead of God... In our lives, in our thinking, in our actions, something's wrong there. That's not the formula for success in life. It's just not. And as the faith and the grace-based teachings of the new covenant, we would call them the good news, the gospel, as these things went out into the first century world, there was a great contrast between what was taught in the Gospels and what was being done in the nations. Great contrast. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, is one of the few times where Rapshaw, Paul the Apostle, said he, was, he feared, he feared whether this is just a form of speech or not, I don't know, but it seems to be saying that he had this deep inner uh, concern. He says, for I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, and then he says this, so your minds, your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Messiah. Paul advocated He advocated clearly a simplicity of devotion to God. And if we take that simplicity and and look at it in the context of the topic we're speaking today, that there should be nothing ahead of God in our life, that he's first and foremost, that we should have no devotion to idols going on in our lives. Well, it should come as no surprise, those of you familiar with the New Covenant teachings, that one of the most attention-getting of all endings of writings in the New Covenant occurs in the epistle to 1 John. The First John epistle. The very last chapter. I mean, there's many ways to end something. When you write something, how do you end it? Well, notice how John ends. 1 John chapter 5. I want to read the last two verses. Verse 20. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Yeshua the Messiah. It says this next. This is the true God. This is the true God and eternal life. And then this unusual ending for an epistle. And check it out. You can compare how the epistles end. And when you do that, you realize this is an unusual ending. That At the end of 1 John, the last verse, 1 John 5, 21, how does it end? It says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. How many agree that that's still an admonition for us today? Keep yourselves from idols. So be it. Now, we may not be bowing before stones covered with silver and gold, peselim, you know, all those type of statues and idols. That may not be what's happening. But we as believers in the Messiah, and if you're a believer here today, I'm particularly addressing you. We need to make sure that we haven't erected anything in here that stands higher in our lives than our Messiah. First and foremost, he must be there. So, in conclusion, please consider. Consider this thought. It is a serious miscalculation. cannot emphasize that enough. It is a serious miscalculation to conclude that the New Testament, the New Covenant writings, with its offer to us of grace, and mercy through faith in Messiah Yeshua, it's a great, great miscalculation to think that somehow in, the, in, in, in that realm of grace and mercy and extension of kindness and through faith in Messiah, that somehow there's some permitted form of idolatry allowed. That somehow because there's grace and mercy and et extended to us, that now, now there's certain forms of idolatry that are just fine for us now. You know, we've got a free pass because of our faith in the Messiah. I believe that's a gross miscalculation. And it's, it would be to try to negate the serious consequences attached to idolatry would be a mistake. The issue of idolatry and other fleshly sins that are spoken of so often, particularly in epistles, those are baseline topics within the apostolic writings in the epistles. For example, I want to close with two scriptures. For example, take what Paul wrote to the Colossians. We've heard what he wrote to the Thessalonians. We've heard what he wrote to the Corinthians. By the way, he said similar things to the Ephesians, etc., but Colossians chapter 3 verse 5 says, therefore put to death your members. And I was reading that and said, ooh, I about to make sure that we understand that. <laughs> put to death your members <laughs> which are on the earth. I'm glad it describes it not members of congregations or members of this or that therefore put to death your members which are on the earth fornication uncleanness passion evil desire and covetousness notice this covetousness which is idolatry do you realize that that when we're given over to a spirit of coveting that it's a type of idolatry it's clearly stated here And then it continues in Colossians chapter 3. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in which you yourself once walked when you lived in them. I like it. You once walked. We got to get away from this stuff. And I'll conclude with the book of Revelation. You would think, oh, by the time the book of Revelation comes, all this is done and passed away. and We don't need to worry about it anymore. Well... Hold on to your seats here. Revelation chapter 21. This book concludes with some strong terms. And Yeshua said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the Aleph and the Tab, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be My son, now the text does not stop with that. In my notes, I have the word B-U-T underlined and in boldface print. But the cowardly, have you ever shrunk back out of fear from doing the will of God? The cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, and look what's in the list. Idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now, friends, I don't know how you interpret that, but I can say this that when we get to the end of the book, there's no change concerning idolatry. It is the Messiah second, third, fourth important? When it clearly says in Matthew 6:33 to do what? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things will be added to you. I want to leave you with, it's serious to not put the Lord first in our life. And we need to be sure, if we're not putting the Lord first, that we may actually be an, an idolater, even though we think that passed away in the first century. When push comes to shove at the end of time it will still be an issue to be reckoned with.
0: You've been listening to the Shabbat message from Rosh Pina Messianic Jewish Congregation in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. We would love to have you visit us. Our weekly services begin at 10:40 a.m. each Shabbat and we are located at 2600 Northwest 55th Place, north of Northwest Expressway at the corner of Northland Avenue and Northwest 55th Place. We meet each Shabbat for wonderful praise and worship with dance, liturgy, teaching, food, fellowship, excellent children's programs, and Bible studies on Tuesday nights. For more information, please visit our website, www.roshpinah.org. That's R-O-S-H-P-I-N-A-H dot O-R-G. You can also reach us by phone at 405-842-1967 or email us at info at Thank you for spending time in the Word with us today. Shabbat Shalom and blessings in Messiah Yeshua.